Hi there, everybody. My name is Scott Grayson, and you're listening to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where my co-host Paul and I inspire you to think clearer and have better conversations about the topics most impacting us. When you ride along with us, we'll take you on a journey that will show you there's always more than one way to look at an issue. You'll learn to think critically about the world and how to challenge the narratives those in power want you to believe. You won't always agree with us, but that's the point, to learn that we can have deep conversations and learn from each other no matter how different we are. In today's episode, we explore some exciting topics. We start off by talking about the muddied world of tribal thinking and then discuss how tribal thought often overrides the concepts of authority and credibility. That line of thought then carries us into the concept of financialization. Here we ask how a focus on stock price maximization has turned many American companies from global innovators into financial zombies. Then we revisit the idea of meritocracy, and we explore a new way of thinking about the concept of privilege. We close the episode with more talk about value and the NFT space. This was an exciting ride where we started with a topic and followed its thread through several different areas. As always, we want to build a community around Mentally Unscripted, so share this episode with your friends and interact with us at mentallyunscripted.com. And remember, the process you follow to reach a conclusion is more important than the conclusion itself. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mentally Unscripted. I am Paul. I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well, except for, as, as we were talking about before we started the episode, I feel like we're, we're living in a time of mud space where, uh, you know, where we want everyone to think clearly. Like the, the purpose of this show is to talk to interesting people and have discussions, you and I, about how to think clearly about pretty much any topic we can come across. And I feel as though in 2021 right now, everything is just muddy. Everything, every space that I'm around is just muddy. It's like walking through this horrible level of quicksand. And I don't know if it's just because all the bad noise we all get or if everyone's minds are so infected with bad software where we're all running these, you know, I'll use the Eric Weinstein type of analogy where we all have these subroutines running in our heads that are just garbage, right? We're, we're just like bringing garbage into our heads and we don't even know it. And then and then, so everything just looks so muddled up and we don't have good ways of, of sifting through the mess. So it's just, I call it mud space. That, that's the land we're living in right now is mud space. Yeah. I think that's an apt description. There is so much noise that seeking the signal, pulling that out is, it's a skill that I think is highly valued, but unfortunately most people aren't, they're not taking the time to do it. They're- well, do- they're hearing well, they the noise. Know they know how to do it. Yeah, that's the thing. I they're hearing the noise and they're easily picking out the noise that they like, but they're not picking out any of the they're not picking out any of the signal that or they're, they're not picking out the entire signal, I guess, that they need in order to make an informed decision. That's pretty terrible. And I think you're right. Yeah, I don't think people know how to do it. Uh, well, and, and and also there's there's these other factors that are leading into us making it difficult for us to do that. So like the one thing that comes to mind that everyone uses and it's a catchphrase is tribalism. That I actually do think it's it's creating this really bad distortion where you hear a piece of information. First thing you want to know is who said it. Then you want to know which team they're on. And then as soon as you know those things, you can start to process it and understand it. Is it an update to my understanding of the world? Or is it just garbage, right? Which which is a terrible filter because, you know, I'll use the the ridiculous analogy, you know, if if Hitler wakes up in the morning and says it's gonna be a sunny day, is he a liar, right? Because he's an evil, terrible person, right? Can he tell the truth at times, even when he's lying about what the ghettos are? Absolutely, of course he can, right? I mean, it's ridiculous to say that he can't. And then there's other things that he may actually be truthful about that aren't just 
everyone can realize it. He may say something like, you know what? I think Germany absolutely can invade France and here's how we can do it. And everyone else says, you're crazy. Well, he comes up with a plan and he executes it, right? Now he's a psychopath. That doesn't mean that he can't be correct on some things, right? And so if you just exclude everybody who's not part of your tribe or your way of thinking, and that's the only way that you're able to get information and figure out what the truth is, then how, how are you ever going to be, know, how do you actually know that you have the truth? You, you have these filters. And, and you know, we talk about filter bubbles and we talk about social media and I, I think it's all true. And then there's a part where it's like, well, you, you got to look in the mirror and say, well, what, what is my tribe? Like how, how important is being part of a tribe to me? that I, I just exclude all this other information. I think for people like us, it's easy because we don't place a high value on being in a tribe. Mm-hmm. I mean, we definitely float towards or, or migrate towards certain types of people. And I think Joe we're Rogan. more com- Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and you know, we've done some podcasts with Jamie Kane. We seem to like him. Yeah. Um, Myron, Absolutely. the guys at Mental Supermodels. Um, you know, we enjoyed talking to Sarah. But we all have, you know, we're all wired similarly, but we're also very happy to speak about areas where we're different and we don't seem to get mired down into that tribal thing. But, and I'm not trying to toot our own horns, but I think, you know, if you were to look at the, the distribution of intelligence, right, I think we all fall a standard deviation or two, maybe above the average. And for the folks who are more in that middle area, Michael Malice and Tom Woods, you call them midwits. And it's not an mm-hmm. insult to them. It's just they're that the people of average intelligence who, you know, maybe they went to college. They think they're maybe a little smarter than they are. They aren't necessarily doing anything to move the needle as far as providing value to the world. So mm-hmm. they adopt this self-righteous attitude and feel like it's their job to tell everyone else how to live their lives and what decisions that they should be making and criticizing people. And those are the ones who I think really get mired into this idea of tribalism, right? They're mm-hmm. smart enough to be able to take what Fauci says and, and, um, and you know, the, the, the governors, uh, Gavin Newsom and whatever, they're smart enough to take what they say and repeat it, but they're not really smart enough or they don't take the time to break it down, to dissect it and to try to get the opposing viewpoints. So, and I'm not, you know, and again, right, I'm not trying to make fun of these people or saying that they're dumb because they're not, they just aren't doing what they should do in order to um, come at something, come at an issue from a rational perspective. Well, there's a, there's a couple of elements embedded in what you just said that I think can short circuit your ability to, to find that truth, right? So if simple questions could be something like, you know, what are the long-term implications or what are the second order impacts? We talk about that as a mental model. Um, we've talked about it several times in this podcast. You could ask that question over the last year and a half around every response to COVID and asking our political leaders, what is the calculus that you've done to understand what those impacts are and how you're going to be addressing them? And and also, I mean, there's a, there's a level of just dishonesty where all of our leaders feel this need to just lie to us rather than to allow for the the amount of uncertainty to be understood, right? Um, they, they seem much more comfortable saying, no, th- these, are the, these measures are absolutely going to work and here's why without having any data. And then if they don't work, they tell us all we're all crazy. Um, but there, so there's, there's a second order uh, uh, impacts that you can ask about. Then there's this thing of just appealing to authority and expecting someone else. So it's, it's a fine line between 
looking to experts and asking them to provide information based on you triangulating multiple experts and different viewpoints on a topic and um, then just accepting that one expert has a universal view of the world and can therefore come up with ideal, perfect solutions, right? Um, you take those two things and then you combine this idea of wanting to be in a tribe, wanting to feel safe. You come to this really bizarre place where people don't want to be asking questions. They want to be, have someone else tell them what it is. And then they only want certain people of their tribe telling them what, what it is, right? Which, which creates more and more of this division that we see everywhere. I mean, you know, at Thanksgiving, I'm talking to people and everyone is concerned about what topics are going to come up. And, and yeah, I did tell them we had a guide on how to never argue again. Hashtag look at our uh, website. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's actually astonishing to me how everyone feels like they're on the knife's edge right now. And they they look outside, they look externally to say, well, look, look, you know, the media is really bad or these political parties are really bad. And while I, I can't argue against that, I'm also like, have you looked in the mirror? When's the last time you asked yourself, what am I doing to make this world a better place? Like maybe my tribalism is too, too much. Um, maybe, uh, maybe I'm focusing on not asking enough questions. Maybe the person that's asking the questions isn't so crazy after all. Uh, or maybe, maybe they are a little crazy. But I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt because they, um, you know, sometimes when they speak, a lot of what they're saying makes a lot of sense, and I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, it, it, but, but all, you know, short circuiting your ability to think through the world and seeking truth is is a terrible, terrible idea. It's an awful idea. If you're not trying to seek out what is real in life, you're just constantly living in this world of fantasy with real world consequences. I mean, it's, I don't know, man. I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. And again, that's why I feel like we're, we're, we're surfing in a, in a mud, mud world right now where nothing makes sense and everyone's confused and we're all just, you know, you know, playing in mud puddles, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) So maybe it's, you know, we've got this idea of two realities each tribe is living in their own reality and yeah. the, the realities just are not mixing it, it, it to any extent. And it, there's definitely narratives out there that, I mean, just on the surface, they don't make any sense. Right. Um, and then there's others where on the surface, they maybe make a little bit of sense to people who are ignorant of the underlying subject matter. And yeah. unfortunately they're not taking the time to educate themselves. So then they're repeating these um, these snippets, these headlines, and they get sort of worked into the general discussion. But because yeah. it's coming from somebody in their tribe, they don't really care to look into it any further. They just inherently trust the person as an authority, even though they may not be an authority. Right? Remember, we talk about in order to be persuasive, you have to set yourself up as an authority, but you also have to have credibility. Well, you know, I'm thinking of, we were talking a little bit before the podcast started. Here's a tweet here from Elizabeth Warren, you know, claiming that the rising gas prices at the pump are the result of the giant oil companies like Chevron and ExxonMobil enjoying doubling their profits. And she claims that this isn't about inflation. It's about greed. I don't know a lot about Elizabeth Warren's background, but I don't really picture her as being an authority on (laughs) the economy. And also, I mean, she's got, you know, she's an MMT type supporter. I don't know if she's as into it as, you know, uh, as Bernie is. Um, She has a tattoo. (laughs) She has a tattoo. Oh, yeah. So, right. So she wants to, she wants to create this narrative where, 
government printing money isn't causing inflation. So she comes out with these sorts of uh, sorts of things with these these just ridiculous statements. But it sounds good on the surface to somebody who doesn't right. understand the relationship between money supply and inflation. And it, so it sounds great. Oh, my God, we're having to pay more for gas because of these greedy businessmen. We need to get the government in here and get this under control. Well, like I said, I don't really view her as an authority. And then because there's an interest on her side to per, to pump out this narrative, I think her credibility is in question too. Um, yeah. You know, so, and I haven't looked at all the data, but w- one simple question that I think you can ask yourself is, well, if Chevron and Exxon could just double the gas price in order to double their profits, why did they wait till now to do it? Why didn't they right. do it last year, or the year before, or the year before that? What changed? What what happened? And I think the only thing we can really point to as a major impact on the economy was COVID, which led governments to shut down um, large swaths of the economy and start printing billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And so to, to just logically try to link it to greed when there's a huge 800, I don't know what the final bailouts or stimulus package was, a 800 billion pound gorilla, you know, sitting in the corner here called government money printing. And to just deny that it has anything to do with rising prices is laughable to me. But like I said, not everyone understands that relationship, right? Not everyone has read Thomas Sowell or Economics in One Lesson or, you know, listens to, you know, Bob Murphy or anything, anything like that. So they don't necessarily understand that the original definition of inflation was an increase in the money supply. It wasn't an increase in the price level. It was only in the last, I don't know, I took economics in the early 90s and we were at that point, um, my professor was a Keynesian economist, and he was even defining inflation as an increase in the money supply, uh, you know, in 1991, 92. So yeah. it's only been over the last, you know, maybe 30 years or so that this idea of inflation being a rise in the price level has has kind of pushed out the classical definition of inflation as being a rise in the, in the money supply. But anyway, I think my point here is, is this claim by Elizabeth Warren, it's easily refuted, you know, and I don't have all the data. I can't say exactly, you know, there's probably some greed mixed in there. You know, the, the oil companies are probably seeing this as an opportunity to take advantage of the situation, much like I think the pharmaceutical companies did with COVID vaccines. But there's also a lot of reasonable, um, reasonable paths we could follow to link the increased money supply to the higher prices, not just at the gas station or not just at the pumps, but increased food supply food prices at the grocery store and whatnot. Right. So I know that long rant there, but what do you think? No, no, but I I think that it's, it speaks to a lot of the problems we were talking about at the beginning of this discussion, where if you are someone that's in Elizabeth Warren's tribe, she says this and you go, right, it's the greed. It's the greed of these corporations that are just trying to take it to the American uh, people. Now, what they they could then ask the question, well, is this just an American phenomenon? And of course, what you see, it, it isn't. Europe is right now experiencing a shortage in gas that is coming from Russia. And uh, so the gas prices have reached an all-time high in the last several months. They are seeing, I think, some issues with stability, um, continuity of their energy resources, which have mostly gone green. You, you could ask a different question that um, that should be asked, which is that we've been doing some transition into green. How much of that is translating into lower cost? How much of that is translating into um, intermittent supply issues? 
Uh, what are the other supply chain issues that are impacting this long from long hauler drivers not being available from people at the docks unable to um, be able to to move and unload and I mean you look at the supply chain that alone is a an area that is is highly complex and just unbelievably misunderstood by the common person and so it the to sit here and, and focus on greed, I could see where that really appeals to uh, a base, and they they hear this and they go, "Yeah, absolutely." I know, you know, what she's talking about is it's real. But to your point, they're not asking other kinds of questions, and really, they're not demanding it of her, right? They're not demanding, you know, Elizabeth, please explain why this is the only factor that is impacting this. Um, let's let's also take this a step further. I, I think it's very difficult for the current administration and people like Warren to argue that they aren't very much in favor of getting rid of natural, uh, any kind of hydrocarbon, right? That's just, that's part of the mission statement, right? I mean, we have every single person within the administration talking about it, how we have to get off of hydrocarbon. The, the problem with that is that there don't seem to be any cohesive plans. They have targets that they set uh, Biden was at a, a conference just a couple of weeks ago, and they talked about how they're going to create these new targets for taking America off of hydrocarbons. But then, so that, wait, wait, tar- sorry to interrupt, but was Biden awake during that discussion, or is that when he was asleep? I don't know. He had glasses on that had eyeballs in them, so I wasn't sure if those <laughs> okay. were his real eyes or maybe you know maybe he was yeah. sleeping through okay. it. Um, was it the glasses with the eyeballs on the springs? Kind of they were on the springs. Yeah, okay. They were on the springs. Yeah. So I got a good <laughs> chuckle out of it. I, I'll, I'll say, you know, Uncle Joe gave me right. gave me a little bit of a laugh. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, um, sorry to interrupt there. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, but you know they they come out with these targets. And and you go okay that's that's just that's just assume it's fine you agree with all that okay but then what happens is is this information comes back and they start to create these programs just like we're seeing with Build Back Better and what we just saw with the the other infrastructure bill that they just passed it it's just filled with pork it's filled with political decisions and not not decisions that are better for the country better for the people of the country um, and so you you just you sit there and become and you're going well. What are we talking about? You've lost your credibility. You've lost your credibility to have a discussion like this when you're not addressing these other issues. And and frankly, it saddens me that someone like Elizabeth Warren, who's clearly intelligent enough to be able to review the issues, I I actually find some of what she says very compelling when she identifies issues. This is not one of those times. With some of the stuff she's talked about from a banking perspective, I think she's she is. Uh, she can be right on what she identifies as the issue, but oftentimes her solutions are just that much worse. You know, she's she's ignoring the the principle that a doctor has, which is first do no harm. Um, her solutions would would you know increase this trifle. Which, by the way, you have to ask: Did Biden churning off uh, the ability to do leases on federal land for gas, and just like they did with the pipeline going into Canada, how did that contribute to this? I mean, expectations-wise, why are, why would Chevron and Exxon be investing in new hydrocarbon flows, which take 10 years? It takes a decade oftentimes to build uh, refinement plants, to build the capacity to be able to transfer oil and gas. Why would they continue to invest in that when the, when the winds are telling them that it's going to go away? Exactly. And that's why we talk about second order consequences a lot. It may right. be, you know, it may sound really great right now, but you have to think two, three, four layers 
down the road? What's this going to cause? Um, it, it could be great that we are doing something to save the environment now, but you're exactly right. That could give these oil and gas companies the incentive to cut back on their innovation and their exploration for new new resources. Um, yeah. which in the short term could cause prices to go up. And let's not yeah, forget, I, I, I mean, the, the U.S. is the biggest government that has the biggest, most powerful government that's ever existed. To think that what the government is doing is not impacting our current economic situation in any way is ridiculous. I mean, they're- <laughs> It's completely ridiculous. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I'm sorry, but th- this becomes a little bit of a partisan issue. The the head- so. What we just saw, the infrastructure bill that was just passed now gives Buttigieg, um, the head of transportation, uh, what, $300 billion? I don't even know what the number is. It's some massive number that he's now allocating. And when I- Overnight, he became one of the most powerful people in the world. Right. And there's there's a great book. Looking for it. Um, oh, I know. I've, I've mentioned it on this this uh, podcast several times, but um, it's, a, it's about the-, the the guy who was spending and building New York City between like 1930 and 1960 and 70s, he, he was the one who basically designed all the roads going in and out of New York, designed the parks. Um, he's credited with spending $28 billion, I want to say. That, that's the reference from the book. Um, and hell, I got to get the It's going to drive me nuts. All right. Well, while Paul does that, I will jump in here and... Give a quick plug for our How to Never Argue Again guide. Go out to our website. We've got a nice new shiny Substack website. It's pretty awesome. It's still mentallyunscripted.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter there. And as a free gift, we're going to give you the awesome guide, How to Never Argue Again, unless you want to. And I figure the information that's in there is probably worth $10 million or something. Um, but we're giving it to you for free. That, that is how much <laughs> we appreciate all of our listeners. We're recording this the week after Thanksgiving. This is our gift to you. We are thankful for you, our listeners. So we're giving you a $10 million guide. Absolutely. <laughs> well, except that you have to give us your email address. But other than that, it's absolutely other free. Than that, that's absolutely. Um, I love the plug, by the way. Um, so the book, the, the book is The Power Broker. The man is Robert Moses. And the title is Robert Moses in the Fall of New York. He spent uh, unbelievable sums of money. And the 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 first part of the the chapter one talks about all the great things that he built, um, all the interstates that came into the city, um, all the bridges, just all the infrastructure. That's that's him. And then it talks about the half a million people that were displaced during that time, poor people whose homes were just taken out, entire neighborhoods were taken out because he had a vision that he wanted to implement. All the power that was given to him, and importantly, it goes. It's the story of a man who's an ideologue, who's an absolute idealist, who wants to fight for the for the common man, who just turns into a power hungry hippo. Right? All he's doing is is enforcing his will to create his vision. Okay, what does that mean for Buddha Judge? I I don't think Buddha Judge is on the level of a, of a uh, Robert Moses necessarily, but you've given a, a tremendous amount of power to a man um, and his department. Uh, about the future of the infrastructure of this this country, right? And and when I hear what they're talking about, bridges and roads, it sounds like they're talking about like it's like 1960 America. And I'm not saying we don't need repair and we can't improve the roads, but is that really the infrastructure of the 21st century, right? I mean, is that the 3D printing that we need? Is that the um, you know brand new systems for for transferring water and, and cleaning it on demand? Is that is that the uh, the new way in which we're going to be doing manufacturing in the future. Like, I don't hear any of that. I hear nothing about it. And it just, it blows my mind that we're sitting here saying, oh, this is great. We've got a guy who's got 20th century thinking. He's, he's from McKinsey. So 
you know, they have a, they have a very, you know, cookie cutter play in terms of how they're going to apply this. And I'm sure they're going to get massive contracts out of this. And, and, and you wonder why people are just so depressed when they look at the, 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 the federal government and asking themselves like, what, when the hell are we going to expect from you guys? You guys, I mean, I don't know. It's just, it, it's, it's a problem. I don't know honestly exactly how to fix it. I know it's an issue. I don't think that the Department of Transportation should be gifted this money this way. I think we need better people that are uh, more sensible about the technology in the future that are focused on 21st century problems. And I just don't think he's it. I'm just not impressed by him at all. No. And when you bring that up, this idea that we're not, we're, we're possibly spending all this money repairing what could end up being out of date infrastructure instead of investing at least a significant portion in moving forward. And remember when we were kids, we were supposed to have flying cars by now. Roads were supposed flying to be cars. a thing as fast. It's like, where the hell yeah. am I flying cars? Come on. Exactly. Yeah. Come on, Elon, get on that. Yeah, buddy. Um, yeah. <laughs> I want my flying cars. Um, so I read this article at uh, American Affairs Journal. It's called Vampires at the Gate, and it's uh, mm. subtitled Finance and Slow Growth, and it's by Herman Mark Schwartz. I'm going to admit, I I went through it once, and I pro- and I need to read it again to dig a little deeper into it. But he is talking about this idea of financialization. I've heard a few podcasts about this, but it's this idea that financial companies are taking over the world. Because of that, we're starting to get a focus too much on short-term financial growth, like um, like increased stock prices, rather than focusing on the long-term investment. So these financial companies, right, they invest in like Hollywood or they invest in these companies, right? And they, they want to see a return right away. So that gives the company, the companies then have the incentive to do things to goose their stock price, which means taking cash and using it to buy back shares of stock, because you know economics, if you decrease if you decrease the supply, right, the the price is going to go up. Rather than taking that money and investing it in research that may not pay off for 10, 15, 20 years, according to this article, this is one of the reasons, or the theory is, is it's one of the reasons why um, economic growth has been so slow in the U.S. recently in the last, I guess, 30 years or so. We just haven't seen those huge innovations really come out. Even Elon's. Um, Tesla and the electric cars. I mean, it's my understanding is, yeah, he's got some new technology in there, but a lot of his gains have just come from the process that he uses, the way he breaks everything down and re-engineers the process to make them more efficient. Now, like I said, obviously there's some technology gains in there too, but a lot of it isn't just the the process that he goes through and and the way he approaches it, the way he thinks about it. And that's all valuable stuff. But we're just not seeing that growth. So we end up with these these zombie companies. Yep. And I'm thinking Boeing is one that during the last big financial crisis or and Boeing had to get that huge bailout. And people were pointing to them as, as one of the problems is that they have essentially cut down the commercial side of their business, gotten rid of all the brain, all the knowledge um, because they cost too much. And they started focusing more on the government side because, of course, government contracts are very lucrative. But then they were also taking all the money they saved by cutting back on their commercial side and using that to um, to bolster their stock price. So then the CEOs and the executives can all get their bonuses. Well, but then the bad side is they end up making planes that don't fly. And we saw that. And then they claim that they need a government bailout because of this right. huge failure. So that's that's a perfect example. So it's this is a good article. I'll link to it in the notes. And uh, like I said, uh, I, I need to go through it again just to get to some of the technical yeah. stuff down. Sure. Um, 
but they, and you, you'll like this. They actually quote Matt Taibbi in here when he uh, called <laughs> Goldman Sachs, a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity. And this is what he was Ooh, getting. I to. like that imagery yeah, is the idea that these financial firms are just sort of, they're sucking the life out of our, um, our, innovative sector and the companies that we look to, to move us forward. So so there's, there's a sort of meta concept that's, that's buried in there, right? So why do we financialize the economy? Why does that end up happening? And you look at the history of the United States. So you've got world war two, if we just start there, you, you have a, you have a foe and it allows us to unite and to fight a foe that is easy on its face to say, these are bad. These are the bad folks. Let's look at them, right? And if we don't fight and win against the bad folks, well, then our all of our lives are going to be um, changed, harmed, and, and doomed. So you can you can get a whole nation to focus on on this problem. And when you do that, you're able to build out planes and tanks. Like you can put all your industrial production into to an area. Wartime thinking. Then we have world, we have the uh, the Korean War, which is that you know it's obviously it's it's a much smaller. Uh, issue uh, it doesn't actually lead to us to to a win um, armistice and of course now it's the reason you still have two two Koreas so since that time what happens right we now focus on fighting the great threat of the USSR and uh, our our economies continue to move forward it's evolving right but I would I would say that in some ways we lost our way as a, as a country um, and this is a great question for, for capitalism is, is where does it go as it starts to evolve, as it's just looking for the new products and services to offer to an economy that's looking for uh, new and great shiny things? Um, because you take it to an ins- its nth degree and where we are today, I think, is a result of the fact that we've, we've lacked a direction of some kind that's going to tell us to be the flying cars that's going to say we're going to be a multi-planetary species. If you listen to what Elon Musk says, he sounds like those ideas that you just described. Like when we were in the 80s and we had this idea that by like 2030, we'd all be like running around in space cars. Like he uses that language and he uses it effectively. We don't, we don't have that in mass and we certainly don't have that as an overall economy. And what happens is, is the people start to point to something like China and they look at the, the fact that they're building out 13 nuclear power plants over the next 10 years, that they have built cities in the time that it's taken us to you know, repair roads, um, that they have advanced information sciences to probably, probably they are the leaders right now in information sciences and how all information is used and categorized. They have made all of these great strides. And people like to look at that and say, well, look, isn't that great? Isn't that fantastic? I mean, that's an amazing model. The problem with that it comes with the cost the authoritarian regime. Now you have a fully directed model and it's continued to move in that direction if you look at all the signals coming out of that country from the consolidation of power. Okay, so what does that mean for financialization? Well, I, I'm just asking the question, like, is this just a, it's, it's an offshoot of a, of a country that's lost its way? And it's not just us. This is happening in every Western country, right? Where they're dealing with the fact that things, are, things got pretty damn good for a lot of people. And so it just became to just con- continue to have that rather than this frontier mentality of fighting and growing and achieving. And that, that to me is a key problem. I mean, I don't know from, from your perspective is, is there, what, what is the, what is the cultural element? How much of that is at play uh, when we talk about the fact that, you know, we're, we financialized everything and, and now we're, we're looking, going around and being like, nothing's really that great. I think when I think of it, what what comes to mind is that we've got too much of a focus on financial success 
and not enough focus on the idea of providing value, of producing something that is going to move the world forward. Because let's just think, just think about it logically, right? I mean, you, you, you move money around in a certain way that causes your stock price to go up. Well, have you really created any value that right. is going to make society better? Or you take that money and you say, we're going to have a long-term focus. We're going to develop the next generation of airliners so that, mm -hmm. you know, everyone feels like they're in first class when they fly to Europe, not just the people who are paying more, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, right. So, and I think there were people, you know, from the Bright Brothers and, and, and I think even Elon Musk a little bit, they, they feel successful or for them, their desire is to create something that mm -hmm. they can say, you know, we did, th I did this, we did this and we're carrying the world forward. Whereas other people, it's just, it's just gotten to about, you know, who's got the biggest yacht and whatever yeah. they need to do to get there. And when you think about the 2008 financial crisis, it's the same thing. I mean, these def credit default swaps, they didn't really do anything for anyone other than to just shift money around and try to get it consolidated into um, particular pockets. And because I don't know, I don't yeah. feel better off because of the credit default swaps. Yeah, but- <laughs> you know, The CDOs haven't given yeah. you a warm and fuzzy? No, no. But, you know, but the idea of Tesla does make me feel better because it's, right. I think it's, you know, just a next stage in the evolution of transportation. So this is where I think if we bring it back to more of this tribal level, I think those on the left, when they describe this are, are accurate, right? They'll, they'll, they'll look at the just the mass consumerism and of, of things that are just cheap and not haven't really moved the needle. And they point to that and say, listen, this is a problem. And they can say, well, this is the excess of capitalism. What are we actually doing? We're not creating value. And on top of that, we have this crazy stratification of inequality where the, you know, the rich the richest rich are so unbelievably wealthier than you know ninety percent of the United States. So, so they, they, I think there's an accuracy in what they call out there uh, that too many on the right don't want to admit to. Then you turn around and, and and the problem is is that when they talk about redistribution, they they seem to have this idea that we can have a, a new greater economy without the progress that you just described, without this this intense focus on creating value of the future, and that can be. How do we actually create value for our energy sector? Which, you know, th they'll say, oh, no, we're doing that because we're talking about renewables. Well, wait a second. If you actually break down how we make wind farms and how we break solar panels, we need to be going way farther, way further. So, what's an example? Well, there's some guy who's floated the idea of putting solar panels in the sky above orbit, right? So, actually, in space, be able to capture the energy there, which has less um, diffusion, right? It's, it's a cleaner source. And then be able to actually channel it down to the planet on some kind of cable. And it's a crazy idea. It's got un, un, incredible risk because if the cable severed, uh, it could like be like dropping an atomic bomb on the planet. So people go, oh no, this is terrible. But those are the kinds of ideas that we need to be discussing. Those are the uh, types of ideas that are, that are transformational that we could have as progress. And that's what I don't ever hear from the people that call out these issues on the left, which is like, we're going to create this, this techno future, which is going to make, like you said, everyone's going to be riding in first class because that's what technology does. That's what technology advancements do. And that's the problem where we have these two sides and they, they end up competing um, for, and I, I'm not sure that I would even say that the right does a great job of the technology side because a lot of it, they just want to sustain the existing system the existing structures and you're going, well, that's not really progress either. We need to be moving forward. Um, 
But there's got to be something in the middle, which basically says, you know, we've got to find a technology solution for a lot of our problems. That is what is eventually, if you don't just absolutely collapse, eventually that's what's actually going to give you this, the, the sustainability that you need. Um, they said that's that's my impression of, you know, looking at anything that's ever improved. Um, right. I think you're onto something there. And when you mentioned, you know, the rich getting richer, um, two things. Well, there's two things that I'm thinking of. First off, with the rich getting rich, richer, I was looking at the Forbes 400 richest Americans list, and there's some interesting oh, yeah. stuff on there. But then the idea of creating value. And I know that you've been reading a lot about NFTs recently. So yes, yes. I, yeah. I want to move into that too, because to me, I, I don't see the value in NFTs. Or, okay. Well, but I, yeah, let, let me just go through the Forbes 400 thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah go for so, it. Um, so what was interesting here, and I'll link to this article, it's the 2021 Forbes 400 list of richest Americans, facts and figures. So overall, the rich got richer. Okay. That's probably not a big surprise. Um, but the collective wealth on that list rose 40% last year. I mean, 40%. 40%? Yeah. Wow. Um, and the cutoff on the list rose to be, the cutoff to be on the in the top 400 rose to 2.9 billion from 2.1 billion. And it was at 2.1 billion for three years in a row. So for three years in a row, it was the same. Then last year it jumped $800 million. So first thought there is, <laughs> what what was the reason for that jump for yeah. those two jumps up 40% and then the increase the cutoff and i think a lot of it you know if you look it's jeff bezos um you know people like that who benefited immensely from the lockdowns last right. year um yeah. so i think a lot of wealth got consolidated up into the upper echelons of the uh of the economy and also, like we alluded to before, the increased money printing. There were just more dollars going around. Um, so this list didn't it didn't adjust for inflation. Um, but I would imagine it had something to do with this. The other thing that I found that was interesting, though, is a lot of talk about privilege and a lot of talk about how the people at the top are. It's generational wealth they inherit it, and that the it's impossible for the average person to break in. Well. Out of the 400, there were 44 newcomers to the list. Okay, I mean, 44 out of 400 is not a lot, but still, it, it tells you that you, that you can you can build yourself onto that list. And 282 yeah. people. Now that's 44 newcomers to the list. Out of the entire right. 400, 282 people on the list are what Forbes calls self-made, meaning that they either wow. started their business or they either started their business like Jeff Bezos or they were hired to lead a business like Meg Whitman who was the, I believe she was what, the eBay CEO um, for a long time. So over half the people are, are got their wealth by working at it. They didn't just inherit it and, and they weren't born into it. So I think you know, when, you, when you look at this idea of this aristocracy that is Loctite and people can't move up, um, it, it just doesn't hold to be true, I don't think. And, yeah. and I mean, these are just surface level statistics, but you know, 44 newcomers to the list. I think that's pretty good. Granted, I mean, it's only about 10%, but yeah, but that's year over year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's 44 from last year. And of right. course, and it doesn't say like how many of these 44 were people who were on it two years ago and maybe they dropped out yeah. and then built back right. up, you know? So there's, there's definitely um, things to look into a little deeper on that, but I think well, it, it should at least, I think, 
poke some holes into this idea of privilege. It, it, it begs that question. And it, it, but there's, a, there's this contradiction in that that people don't want to just admit, right? That what, what happened if that entire 400 list, list of 400 people were people that were self-made, that started with a middle income and then became one of the top 400 most wealthiest people in the country by creating something? Would people be satisfied uh, with that? Would society be satisfied that these 400 people are able to create something that was so valuable? Um, I, I, it's, un, it's, it's not clear to me that it would be. And that, that, that to me is a problem. Um, and, and we, I know we talked about it on our episode about meritocracy and the, the, um, the work that is being done to try and understand, you know, in that book, he talks about the stats. We'll look at all these people that don't move up, although he seems to ignore what happens in certain parts, certain parts of Europe. And, um, there, there seems to be just some issue like, well, it's not good if we have these people that are super wealthy. And I'm thinking, I, I, is it, I mean, how do we know? How do we know that it isn't good if, let's say, you know, all these other measurements that we care about? So if, if we had more people that have clean water, we have more people that have good, sustainable energy, we have more people that have nice homes that are, and we just have a safer society. Do we care that 400 people are self-made and super wealthy? No. And, and for 44 people, I'm sure we would come up with some, if we tried hard enough, we could come up with some reason why they're an exception. And we don't know where these 44 people started. I mean, they may have started already rich. Maybe they were born into a family of millionaires and then they had the capital to build it. But still, the opportunity was there for him to do it. And, um, you know, Jeff Bezos, I don't, I don't think he came from a, I don't know much about him, but I don't, I don't think he came from an especially wealthy family. I think he had to borrow the money to start Amazon, if I remember correctly. So, yeah. Well, but, but that right there, there's a lore there, right? I think he borrowed, it was, it was a substantial amount. I think he borrowed like maybe a quarter of a million dollars, right? Um, from his family. That's, that's my understanding of the story. Right. I think it was his in-laws or something, but okay. So let's, let's just look at that. So certainly you could sit there and say, well, he's got privilege. Well, he, he went to an elite college. I think he went to Yale. Um, then he has this idea of starting a companies, uh, uh, to sell books online. He wasn't the only one. Uh, there were other, in fact, I think the, there were many other places that were doing this already. Um, some of which were doing a better job, and then he outcompeted them. Uh, and it, there's there's all these questions, I, I guess, that don't quite make sense to me, right? If it, certainly there there's this this question of could we get money into the hands of other people that could potentially have done as good a job, if not better, than Jeff Bezos, but they didn't have access to liquidity, they didn't have access to the investment, perhaps, right? I think though it's there's another question: How many people took a, a loan of two hundred fifty thousand dollars and didn't turn it into anything, right? <laughs> exactly. Or you know, or the ten people that took twenty five thousand dollars and they turned that didn't turn it into anything because there's it's clear to me I, whether I like Bezos or not, he has a very good mindset for developing value. I mean, his his what he's done with Amazon is absolutely exceptional. He redefined logistics. They redefine cloud. He's redefined uh, product development. I mean, Amazon's insane. And the thing is, you you kind of look and you go, it's a website that sells products. And by the way, I, I have a book. Um, it's called uh, Purple Cow. Yeah. Purple yeah. Cow by Seth, Seth Godin. Seth Godin. Yeah, it's a good one. Okay. And I, I want to say it came out in like 08, 09, maybe. You know, maybe oh, no, it was actually a little bit earlier than that. I think it was like 04, maybe 03. In that book, he talks about how Amazon is starting to move away from just selling books into all these other products. And uh, I, you know, I, I read this book a while ago, but I'm pretty sure he talks about it as not a great idea. 
what are they thinking going into all these other product areas? How are they going to get all the, the the supply chain issues accomplished? What are they going to do for their brand? I mean, they're, they're known for selling books. What are they going to do sell all these other products? How are they going to make sure the quality is good? And look at what they've been able to do over 15 years. And I know so many people that hate Amazon that shop on Amazon because they just know it's exactly, it works for them. They want to use it. It's simple. So Again, I go back and say, okay, fine. He got a he got a big loan. Maybe you want to give loans to other people, but you are being woefully ignorant if you think that just everybody is able to execute like Bezos does. That's just I I don't I don't know why you would assume that. Like right. you said, there's a distribution curve. He's clearly at one end of the curve. Right. And I think one thing we didn't bring this up on the um on the merit episode, on the meritocracy episode. But one thing I was thinking is maybe we need to stop looking at it in terms of a single generation and start looking at it as a multi multi-generational process. So you have the first generation who is born into nothing. Yeah, maybe they don't make it into Harvard, but they make it into a good state school and they can move up into the middle class and then they can instill that work ethic in their children. And then their children, maybe they get into a good mid-level private school. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then they can move up into the, into the upper class and then their children make it into Harvard and then all the doors open up to them. So maybe our timeframes are just a little screwed up on this. When we talk about this idea of privilege and opportunity, maybe we just need to look at it as a multi multi multi-generational process. I, I think that's a great question. And I know that when they, th- there's an element there that you think about, again, having that future, that that the, the North Star that you're going towards. And, and maybe that's just a political conversation that we need to have as a country and every country needs to have, like, where do we want this to go? That think about the multi-generational where we, we, want the, we want people to have the opportunities to do that over time. Um, and then while they're going through that, we want to minimize the amount of um, unnecessary hardship, and what I mean by that are things like like violence, right? We want to we want to minimize violence in their life because that's kind of tied into a lot of these stories, right? Someone who lives on the south side of Chicago or or the west side of Chicago or like south side of LA, and they live in in Watts and they live in this terrible neighborhood, and then you know their their family doesn't have a lot to give them, and then they they don't have a lot to see to like to get out of that, and they're constantly living in a state of fear. Maybe that's what we need to focus on less about like the generational movement or, or that's, that's a necessary condition that we need to create. And then we can, we can, we can be pushing for that, that multi-generational change. Because I, I think most Americans uh, would be interested in that. They are interested in that. They want to assume that that actually happens. It's like this idea that people can move up. And uh, if, we, if we give them that, that future, that bright future, I, I think most people would embrace it. Um, I, yeah, I, I could be wrong about that. And, so here's a question for me. When we're talking about this idea of privilege, like some people are just born with more advantages um, due to the family they're born into. Would adopting that multi-generational approach, would that, would that obfuscate the idea that you can go from being a poor kid in, in a ghetto to becoming a successful person? Because let's say the path that I laid out, like generation two or three, right? The kids are able to work their way into that private school and start getting those connections. And then, then, you know, then that's the generation that really explodes. They get up into that millionaire stratosphere, hundred millionaire stratosphere. But would people say that they were still privileged because the generation before them was actually an upper middle class or an upper class family, even though two generations before 
right? They were on food stamps. The family was on food stamps. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so it would almost, so looking at it multi-generationally, right? It, 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 it's consistent with the idea that, you know, if you work hard and you do what you're supposed to and you're smart and uh, all that, you can build yourself up or build your family up. But if you just look at it as a single generational thing, you're going to say, well, it's still privilege because they had the advantages of coming from an upper middle class family. Well, but then I guess my question is what utility does talking about privilege provide us? Uh, maybe none. Yeah, that, that's that's what I come back to because I, I okay, so my, my own history here, I, I'm raised overseas, I'm raised on a compound, I'm raised as an American in a place. So you know that, on was, a higher, that was Gitmo, right? <laughs> that was Gitmo, yes. Yeah. So it was it was definitely Gitmo. <laughs> yeah. Um it was a lovely place in the in the wintertime. Um, and so no, it was it was in the Middle East, some race, you know, oil company, and you know, we have all these privileges. We 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 do. As an as an American, you have privileges that other nationalities don't have. And so like the Bangladeshi uh, people that would come in, especially there's a there's a strong division between the uh let's let's call them the white the white collar and the in the blue collar class. And uh, I mean it was it's I, I could, we could, that could be a whole episode. So I'm not going to dive into all those details, but I experienced that privilege. You absolutely had it. Right. Um, and we, we had scholarships to go to boarding school, right. Uh, non-merit based. They were, they were paid for the company. So we, we get to go to these great schools. We still have to get into them. Right. Um, so, so you have that as well. Uh, and then you, you see this and then I, I, I have an interesting experience watching some people excel and others uh, doing rather poorly in life, right? If if I, I mean, it's it's always a question of where are you in this moment? Uh, what does your life look like now? But I mean, some people have struggled extremely hardly, just just trying to do become a basic adult. Others have gone on to be wildly successful financially, done great things with their lives. And so, wh- what what is the value of understanding the privilege? Is it is it me looking at the the poor Bangladeshis and the Sri Lankans who are blue collar? Who who leave their countries for years at a time, send um, live off of rice and beans essentially, so they can send every dollar back to their family, and and recognizing that I don't have those hardships, I, I suppose I, I know some people look at that and they just they don't care. I, I looked at it and I thought this is this is terrible, right? Uh, that 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 um this this exists, but I'm not sure that any of that had to do with with what I went on to do with my life, right? Um. I mean, there, there's certainly an element of empathy, uh, and I can see that as being valuable. But does it does it help us shape the way we should think about society? Does it help us from an analytical perspective? I don't know that it does. I I, I don't I don't know that I care. Uh, what I what I do care about though is, and we talk about multi generational. Is like, are we progressing forward? That that's a different question. So so let's say Elon Musk has. I mean, I think he has ten kids. What if each ten of his kids built a trillion dollar company, a $2 trillion company. So he's built a trillion dollar company. Each of his kids do a $2 trillion company. And that's based on not on regulatory capture or you know all the other junk that comes with, with owning an industry. No, they create 10 different companies that add that much value. Are we, are we really that, are we worse off because that happened through Elon's kids? I, I don't think so. I, I, I don't know. What, what do you think of when you think of privilege and and its utility in terms of understanding where we want to go? Well, I think what you were describing is we can look at it from a macro level and a micro level. You know, at the micro level, it's this person did this. What type of family did they come from? What advantages did they have? Um, At the macro level, it's 
well, this person did this and it made society better off. Um, and I think it's easy to, depending on which way you look at it, come down on either side of the question, is privilege something we should be looking at? I think overall, I mean, we should just really be looking at, number one, what are people doing? So going back to the financialization um, topic, you know, are they are the incentives in place for people to bring value to the world? Are they are the incentives there to build rocket ships to go to Mars and to build electric cars and to build the next great supercomputer or whatever? Or are the incentives there for people to just you know goose a stock price in order to hit some target so they can get a bonus without actually you know doing anything for anybody? Right. Um, yeah. So there's that level, but also. I think we need to take a hard look at this idea of, you know, are people really blocked out of moving up in in life? And, I, you know, on the, the Tyranny of Merit podcast, or in that book, I should say, you know, he definitely made the point that, you know, there's really not a lot of moving up in social class in the U.S., but again, maybe he was just looking at it too narrow of a scope. You know, maybe he's just looking at, you know, you're born here, you die here, but he's not really looking at it from, well, what does the next generation do and the generation after that right. do? You know, how many stories do we hear of a, a poor immigrant coming to the U.S. with, you know, no money in their pocket and they start a little business and they struggle, but then their kids, you know, they pick up the business and it gets bigger and then you know, their kids, you know, they grow it into this empire. Um, you know, we hear that a lot. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the American dream. So I think, you know, for that, we need to take a hard look at how, how possible is that? What kind of opportunities are there for that multi-generational um, cycle, I guess? Mm -hmm. And is there really a structure in place that's trying to keep people from, um, from making those jumps from generation to generation? And if there are, what, you know, what are they and what can we do to short circuit the process? But I would be interested to see, you know, how many, yeah. how many kids who are in Harvard today or how many of these tech entrepreneurs who are making money, you know, where, where were their families three or four generations ago? Not where did right. they start? Where were their families three or four generations ago? I'd, I'd be interested to see that. I, I'd be interested to see that. And I, I, I still am always going to come back to the where where does this take us next, right? Because there's, unfortunately, a lot of this conversation ends up being couched in, you know, these ultra wealthy people have a bunch of privilege. And if we take that money and redistribute, everyone's going to be better off. And it, to me, that's just not, it's just not clear that that's actually true. Um, that if if you had, like, for example, if you, if you talk about this idea of people moving up um, these different social economic strata, if, if it's always organized and you're always going to have a minimum amount of poverty, you're going to have some level of poverty, you're going to have a poverty line, right? Well, then that implies that you're always going to have some baseline of people that are going to be sitting below a poverty line, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a sort of relative metric. And so yeah. and, I'm, I'm, unless you I'm wondering, can, oh, yeah. no, I was just going to say, unless you can make sure that everyone has the exact same amount of money, but I don't think we're going to be able to do that because in order to distribute the money to make it equal, there's going to have to be some sort of a power structure in place. And by virtue right. of that power structure being in place, I think you're going to have a stratification in society. It's just going to be just it's going to be more like two levels rather than, you know, just the wide disbursement that yeah. we have now. So sorry well, to interrupt you there. No, no, I, I think that's a great point. It's, it's, which, which gets to another sort of meta point that none of these systems are perfect and the environment is dynamic. So if you know you have an imperfect system, it may be at some point it's achieving, it's maximizing on what you care about, but because the environment is dynamic, it's going to need to be altered and changed over time. 
Now, the worst thing you can do is change it based on the whims rather than first principles understanding of the model. And maybe some of the the um, the components or elements that have changed or evolved, uh, and that's that's where I guess I, I struggle a little bit. Where yeah, I mean, a, a question I could say, and I, you know, we're picking on Elon here and, and picking on Bezos. So let, let's Bezos. You could say, well, he's he's getting all this power because he's bought the Washington Post. Um, he has this company that's that's well ingrained in American society as you know the 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 number one distribution company right now, basically logistics and. Um, what kind of power does he have? Does Bezos have for pushing his own agenda? Because I mean, that's that's what we talk about in terms of privilege. Like he can basically, uh, I mean, at the nth degree, he can commit any crime he wants and never has to be worrying about being prosecuted. On top of that, he can implement laws without um, having to worry about the fallout. And I go, okay. I mean, I, I suppose that's true. That's the privilege we don't want. Well, what is Elon doing? Elon is is building company after company after company, building new products and services. Uh, using his his wealth to reinvest it in new products and services. I, I I guess I just struggle with understanding why we're talking about privilege and going. What does it matter if that's what he's doing? It just doesn't doesn't make sense to me. Let's not forget Elon's not making money off the national security state the way Bezos is. Bezos is also yeah. Uh, a big part of Amazon's profits are that huge contract he has with the CIA. So, um. yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. So well, wait, we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna round this out with NFTs, right? Um, do you want to? So we're at an hour. Do you want to do the NFTs now, or you want to tackle that next podcast? I, let's 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 set it up. Let's see if we can do it. I don't know. I mean, I feel like everything everything crypto decentralized seems to just go in multiple directions. But maybe maybe there's a way we can simplify. We can essentialize it and bring it down. Okay, go for it. You All know right. more about the NFTs than I do. Okay, so for anybody listening, uh, the NFT it's, it stands for non fungible token, and it is a a way in which um, people are able to use crypto networks. So think think of something like Ethereum uh, to put a piece of artwork or music or other type of uh, information online, and then be able to sell it. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, you know, if you think about a picture online, if you, if you search for uh, Da Vinci, uh, you go into your search bar and Google Da Vinci, and you pull up the Mona Lisa as an example, you're going to get all these images of the Mona Lisa. You can send that to somebody else. Now they have an image of the Mona Lisa. Um, that's not the same as actually owning the Mona Lisa, but that's like a digital representation of the Mona Lisa. The idea of the NFT is that it, it basically puts a stamp on that image that you share of who owns it, when it was created. And other elements as well, so they, they 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 affix a kind of signature to that that digital representation uh, of the artwork or or anything else, music, picture, etc. Uh, and it's intended to give in in the in the digital space kind of this similar property that you have in the physical space, the uniqueness, if you will, right? So, uh, Pomp, uh, who's a who's a big Bitcoin supporter, uh, described it this way: if if I had uh, 10 $1 bills and I owed you a dollar, you don't care which of those I give to you, right? Uh, the first one I give you or the sixth one, it's it's always a dollar. But if those were NFTs and each one of them was was unique in some way, so you know there's a different symbol on each one of those dollars and and I gave you the sixth one, well, you're going to, and, and you were expecting the seventh because it has a different symbol on it, you're going to want the seventh. You want the unique one. They're not all the same, okay? So that's, that's at a very high level what an NFT is. It, it, it's a unique representation. It has certain properties. Okay, why does it matter? Why do we care? Well, there's a fantastic 
I would say a small short story. It's not an article. It seems like it's a blog post, uh, but it's it's entitled "Why NFTs Are a Generational Innovation." And in this article, he describes how he went from thinking these NFTs were a passing fad to how he breaks down the interpretation of value and how that value then is passed on to these these tokens, these NFTs. So the article, as I mentioned, is very lengthy and it's got so much information and it's, and it's somewhat dense, but I want to highlight a key points that really stuck out at me. By the way, I don't own any NFTs. So I'm not I'm not I'm not pushing anybody to go buy them. You know, crypto punks or or you know images of rocks, whatever whatever the latest one is. So in, in this, he talks about this idea that um, what is art and why does art have any value at all? So he asked that question, and of course you know the answers come back. Well, you know at some point you have an artist whose art is is loved by other people, and so they they someone bid it up in sort of a typical market dynamic, supply and demand. Uh, because he only has one picture of it, and they want that original picture. Uh, and so, if as more and more people hear about this great artwork, uh, more and more people want it. So theoretically, the the price goes up. Well, what is the upper bound of that price, right? Because the materials going into that picture are relatively, I mean, they're minimal, right? And and then how do we actually know that that artist is so amazing? I mean, if you look at these techniques. Um, for how they actually created the artwork. I mean, many other people can can mimic the techniques. Um, and if you actually look at a specific piece of artwork, so in this case, we're going to talk about Da Vinci and we're going to talk about the Mona Lisa. You can have people that can forge it where an expert can come in and look at it and not even know that it's been forged. And if you took that picture to somebody and said, here's the Mona Lisa, and they'd ask you, how much is it worth? It's worth $40 million. They would, they would believe you and they would, they would understand that. And they maybe just, they have these assumptions. Oh, okay. Well, then all this value associated with it. And then if I told you that the one I had in my hands was fake, you, you saw it, you thought it was the Mona Lisa. You couldn't tell the difference. Multiple experts looked at it and they couldn't tell the difference. What's the value of it now? Zero? Negative, right? It's exact. It, it, you couldn't tell at all the difference between the artwork, right? So the point that he's making in this, and he and he, he adds some additional elements, is that it is an entirely subjective value, and it's a, it's a several different elements, right? You want this authenticity, you want the the real thing, uh, combined with this idea that everyone else cares about it, which he talks about the idea of of a meme that basically artwork is is meme. So the example he gives is the Mona Lisa. So I didn't realize this, but apparently. The Mona Lisa was stolen in the earliest 20th century. Prior to that, it was stolen, I think, out of the Louvre. Prior to that, it was just a no-name piece of artwork. No one really cared about it. No one, no one really knew about it. Um, even though it was, it was done uh, by Da Vinci, you know, he had all this other artwork that everyone cared about. So then it's stolen, and it's read about it in newspapers all over the world. Every, everyone's concerned. They're really curious, and they go, "Oh my gosh, what is this piece of artwork? It must have been value if it was stolen, right?" It becomes the number one piece of art that is viewed at the Louvre, and as as he mentioned, they they you can actually do a price model looking at the number of people that come into the Louvre, um, the annual attendance, how much they pay per tickets, the number that are there to to actually look at the um, at the piece of art, and model that against the the actual cost of the artwork. So if it's currently estimated at forty million dollars, and you do three hundred million in revenue a year. You can actually you can actually look at the cash flow you're generating off of this asset, but the but the real point there is that even though it was it's now considered um, this amazing piece of art, it it you know 100 years ago no one was really talking about it. It was the same construction. It was this all the work by, done by Da Vinci, but no one cared. They started to care when it became a meme, 
when it became this idea, this idea that moved throughout um, society as this, as this piece of artwork. And, and then, of course, it starts being uh, propagated as, as this idea of something to visit when you go to Paris, something that has to be seen when you go to the Louvre, et cetera. So what, what does that mean for, for digital NFTs? His point is that we've now created a way to take online memes and make them what what Da Vinci did or what the what the theft of the Mona Lisa did for for um, for its value, you can now do that with digital images, right? So if someone creates a piece of artwork online, just because you can get an image of it, a JPEG of it, that that now that we have an NFT technology that does that signature, now you know the difference between the original, the authentic one, and all the other copies, and that alone makes NFTs a new force for change. So I just shared a bunch. That was a soliloquy. It looks like I was talking for about seven minutes. What questions do you have? Because I know it's so 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 straightforward. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that um, the, the story about the Mona Lisa, about how no one really cared about it until someone stole it. And that signaled to the world that, oh, there must be something about this thing. The NFTs, though, the Mona Lisa is a one of a kind, right? Yep. Um, so I've been on the Dizo blockchain, um, which is um, a, an app called Diamond App or BitClout, um, two ways you can access it. And it's kind of a Twitter thing, but they also sell NFTs on there. And I've noticed that a lot of people, they're cranking out these these pictures and they all are basically the same thing. This just mm-hmm. the details are different. Like there's one who does right. like apes. So he's, you know, got like a spaceman ape and a samurai ape, but it's, it's all the same picture. They're just sort of dressed up differently. Um, right. You know, it's like when you're a kid, you know, you got Mr. Potato head, right? The same, the, it's the same basic shape. You're just putting different accessories on it. And my question is, is since it's so easy to crank these things out, what is going to create value with them? Um, it would be so easy for somebody to create a hundred Mona Lisas, you know, each with a slight variation. Whereas the Mona Lisa, the the physical Mona Lisa, it's the only one there is. Um, right. It just so, there's a lot more effort that goes into a Mona Lisa yeah. than to creating an NFT with some computer program. So where so, where is the value yeah, where, really coming from? Yeah, so it's it's a it's the it's the right question to be asking uh, because there's an element there, right? So. You go from someone needing to develop the techniques with a brush to be able to paint to where uh, we have photography that comes out in the what the late 19th, earliest 20th century. And now we have people like Ansel Adams whose, whose images are sold for thousands, maybe millions of dollars, if you, I guess, if you get an original. But that's someone who is using a, a prop, if you will, which I'll, I'll call the camera a prop that... Um, captures light, but then they have all the technology that goes into it that can that can change the light, uh, make sure that the image looks better um, than you know than a novice would. So if a novice picks up a camera and they take an image, um, what's the difference between that and a professional who's who's taken ten thousand images, right? What 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 are the dimensions? What are they able to see uh, differently? Why why is someone's images that they take on a camera so much superior in terms of value to someone else's? And then how does that change once? computers are the ones that are creating the images, right? So we, we've, the camera allows us to, to, to create all this artwork. I'm putting that in parentheses just by, you know, pressing the, the shoot button. Now we've got tools like Photoshop and other types of design CAD type software that allows us to produce all of this, this like abundance of art. And that is the problem with, with understanding what will, what will actually accrue value in this space. 
Um, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's possible that, you know, whereas, whereas the Mona Lisa is $40 million, you could see NFTs, um, a lot of them having value, but maybe it's more like $10,000, right? Over time. Like right now, these prices are crazy high, 600000 a million dollars. I think Beeple did it for, um, I want to say $50 million. He sold an image. And, um, and, but didn't he have a reputation before? Right. So there's that right. the question you're asking is again, it's, it's, yeah. it's not just the, the image itself, right? That's not artwork. And that's what the article was, was mentioning, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's there, there's a reputational element. There is an aesthetic element. And then there's a meme element where all that gets combined into the perception of the value of whatever the artwork is. Now, here's something that's actually really cool that, that is possible now because of NFTs. And it's this idea of generative art where the image um, or the music or the combination thereof can change over time. And I don't just mean fading, right? There's, there's ways in which you could have an image, let's say an image with a boy and an apple that over 80 years is going to d- degenerate into an older man, right? And, and they, can, they, can, um, they can do that with the, the coding that they actually have of the NFT online. Which which changes the dynamic a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, we've now we've gone from these static images like the Da Vinci, like the Mona Lisa, and we've now created a way in which we could make it dynamic. It opens up a world of possibilities that I don't think we quite understand yet. That you're you're absolutely right. I think asking the right question, what gives it value? I think it's the elements we talked about. It's the reputation. It's the uniqueness. It's the aesthetic, and it's it's also the meme component of it. Those combine, but how they combine? It's still, I, I, I mean, one of the reasons I haven't bought any NFTs, uh, let alone the price right now, they seem extremely high. I look at the same thing. I'm like, what's a space ape? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. It makes no sense to me at all. But I, I, I also don't want to dismiss it because of all, I think he made the argument in this article that really it made me buy into it from the sense that I, I know that it's going to be valuable, but I don't understand how. Right. And I've heard some talk. And I didn't pay attention to it, but it was somehow going to overlap with the idea of the metaverse and that the that there was going to be a way to combine your NFTs with the metaverse to make these things more valuable. But I I just I have not gotten into the metaverse a whole lot, so I don't really know what the the details of it are. And I don't know how <laughs> NFTs are supposed to interface yeah. with that. But, you know, I'm going to go back to my original point, though. I mean, even even an Ansel Adams portrait, right? He still had an eye for something in that photograph to make it look good. Like you said, that he had the right lighting, the right aesthetics, his choice of, you know, which tree or which mountain to take a picture of. With these NFTs, when I'm looking at them, like I said, it just looks like they're just mass produced yeah. things. Right. So what right. is... You know, so, you know, if you have a reputation already in the art world and you create this thing, your reputation is going to be selling it. But if you don't already have a reputation and you just start creating these NFTs online, what what is it that's going to attract people to yours over someone else's? And how well, are you going to start to yeah. build that reputation um, when I guess it's just that the market's going to get so diluted. There's going to be so many of them out there because they're so easy to create. Um, I, I think that the easy ones that you're describing, these sort of pixelated images that we, we, we're all sort of scratching our heads as to why does that matter? Um, I, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't quite understand those because my mind looks for the more aesthetically uh, pleasing. I have uh, some images. There's a There's an account on Twitter um, that... I found, which is sharing some really interesting NFT artwork. 
and it's more on the order of beeples um, that uh, not, not that it's the same kind of aesthetic, but to me, it's it's another level of sort of uh, skill, right? And 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 that that to me resonates more. Like when I see what what some of these people have done, they've created these very interesting uh, three dimensional images um, that look very. Uh, complex, intriguing, aesthetically appealing. There's there's a, there's value in in what I'm looking at versus a pixelated picture of a um, of a pig or or a monkey or an ape. I guess that's the big one that can just be it appears it could just be replicated over and over and over again. Yeah. So um, you're saying that there would still be some skill in it. It's just instead of using you know brushes and a physical canvas, they're using a pen and a tablet and a paint program or something, but still generating that same unique aesthetic. Yeah. So, so, so there's a, there's a, a woman that does these three, 3d paintings. So you put on, um, I guess, she, I mean, she's like almost pre metaverse, you know, where I think in the last couple of years she started to do these paintings and, um, she puts on the goggles, right? So if she's using some kind of virtual reality, she puts on the goggles and then she starts to paint in this virtual reality world. And it is a, it's a landscape. But um, I mean, I think she was, you know, an art student of some kind and applied this new medium to create these, uh, these images. And so, yeah, you are moving away from what is the actual skill level that's being applied. And, and, and you're going to come back to the idea of like, this is a, um, it's a picture or it's a sculpture or it's um, some other t- piece of art. So I, I, I think that that will happen over time naturally. I think younger generations are, are not going to be asking these questions in the same way. But, but I, I wanted to come back to this idea of meta. I think the, the simplest version of meta that people have, which who knows how it will actually play out, is this idea of all these different game spaces. And, and what I mean by games, you've got the ones where you actually have a quest and you go out there and you have to fight enemies and so forth. And you've got other ones that are more like uh, The Sims, where you just walk around and interact with people. Uh, like Second Life was, I guess, when it came out. And you you buy something in one of those games and then you can go to another game and it's got value. That, that, that token, that, that NFT. So let's say it's a sword and you're in a game and you're fighting dragons and you kill those dragons and it's a very powerful sword. Could you take that then to another game and then use that sword there so it's it's you know it's it's almost like you know buying a sword in real life, right? And you've you've gone and slayed some dragons. Now you're going to another land and you're going to slay dragons there. Um, I think the same questions apply. Like, why will that sword be so valuable? I guess it's got all these points associated with it. Um, it's been used by the best people in the in the game, right? The, they're on the leaderboard. But that that is kind of a simplistic view of how those things could travel in, in the metaverse. Um, I, I, I think it's completely un, everyone has imaginations right now, but there's so many unknown questions that like, you know, the example I just gave, how do you have two competing systems that have an open framework that could allow you to move a sword from, from game A to game B? Like even right there, that's a, that's an unknown. I mean, you have different graphic processor, you have different resolution. There's all kinds of questions that are, you know, have to be answered in order for that to take place. How, how does a sword work if you, if you now go into a, to a sci-fi world and everyone has guns, right? I mean, like there's a, there's a lot of unknowns that I don't think were, uh, that, that could make for amazing opportunities, but 
but that is the idea of the metaverse is that I hear from a, from the crypto people. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, I'm sure there's people much smarter than me about developing all this stuff that have laid it out. But I could see there being like an open API or something where you know you you code your sword in this particular structure, and then you can just take it and plug it into another world. And then I could also see there being a marketplace where I'm yeah. done. I'm done playing the the. Dungeons and Dragons game. So I'm going to sell my sword to buy a super laser pistol so I can go play in Mass Effect or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and actually to that point, the the NFTs being on the Ethereum blockchain, any smart contract platform can, theori- in theory, write the the code so that you could create a smart, um, th- that specific type of smart contract, an NFT smart contract, and then people could reference it. So you could, you could imagine a world where th- that's where it starts. Right, so like I'm a game. Let's say I'm a new, um, a new sci-fi game, shoot 'em up kind of game. You say, hey, by the way, you can buy uh, tools and weapons on the open market and bring them into our game. So someone could go to Ethereum or OpenSea, which I think is the um, they they do NFTs. It's a it's a centralized marketplace for NFTs. They go there and they let's say they buy a blaster. And they're able to bring it into the game, right? Yeah. Uh, there's and, and they what they do is they're just reading the code um, for that contract off of the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah. Um, and I, I could see it being like you know, well, this blaster is compatible with these games, you know, but it's not yeah. compatible with these games, something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're so, saying like in that case, like the the NFT would be the blaster, right? right. And there would actually be some functional use to it in the game world yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a pretty interesting concept and like i mean everything we just described you you start to think about different ways in which people would be trading those those items um like does does yeah. it create new world consequences if if like well, you that's, die? that's what i'm thinking though is <laughs> if you what would be stopping a developer from creating the mega nuclear disintegrator discombobulation blaster that just destroys everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, there'd have to yeah. be some sort of guidelines or some sort of controls on it. Um, and yeah. And then if you die, what happens? Do you lose it? Does the next yeah. person who comes wandering along, just pick it up. That would be just cool. Yeah. That'd be, that teaches some real world consequences for your actions. <laughs> exactly. I think, yeah. do you have a number on there? That says, you know, if lost, call me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're dead though. But so, <laughs> but, but I've been yeah. regenerating. See, that's, that's what's so funny about the, the digital world, right? Like you, anything can, can persist inevitably, uh, you know, for eternity. Yet at the same time, it's, it's also can die easily right uh because we take risks in in our digital selves you know jumping off a cliff so i played mario for for 10 minutes last night i jump onto a world and i get flung off and i go into a black hole like i don't care like i'm not worried about poor mario falling into a black hole because it's 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 a digital you just don't like italians do you (laughs) (laughs) one of my favorite countries i love that place for all the italian listeners out there um, but you know, it's, it's, you, you take different risks. And so may, might this create a new way of, of instilling risk in, in a, a very creative way, right? Um, you actually have some, some skin in the game, some money on the line. It's, it's a fascinating, it's fascinating. I, I think there's a lot that, that can happen with that. I think that's why so many VCs are so interested in it is that they see, they see a growth or a potential for virtual reality in the next decade. They see the growth of blockchains. They they know they understand the younger generation is so big on gaming, and um, it's an area where I mean, basically, you can create an entire world 
that in some way mimics our physical world. So that could be a brand new economy. Yeah. Along with the lawsuits. So I think I'm going to get into this early. Um, Yeah, that's right. (laughs) The the accusation that, well, you you created the nuclear blaster and it killed me and I lost all this money and that's not fair. You violated game rule, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be a whole new section of law, right? Right. Yeah. I'll be getting into that game law, metaverse game law. So, all right. Well, we are at, wow, this was a long one. So this was a long one. We will probably be talking about NFTs more in the future, I think, since this seems to be, not seems to be, it is one of the big areas right now that there's a lot of attention turning to them. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what they are. And I'm right there with it because I've looked at it and I'm like, okay. But I know like Gary V's jumped into it pretty hard. Um, and some other big name folks in the tech and crypto worlds have. So we'll, we'll see, see where yeah. it goes. I think that, that a lot of the people, I mean, you, you kind of see this where it's like, you think about IBM getting into mobile or Microsoft getting into mobile. And then it took a company like Apple to really change the game. Uh, I mean, obviously it wasn't just them. You had Ericsson and Nokia that were doing it before, but you just, you, you, I do wonder like with Gary V as an example, like is what he's doing, going to be the catalyst for this stuff maybe or maybe he's just like he's just the ibm of, of which sounds weird because it's gary v i mean the guy is all about kind of edgy marketing but is is he going to be um or, or is the real use case that's going to explode uh, is it going to be something entirely different i feel like it is but i mean we don't know we'll, we'll have to see and like you said we'll keep on coming back to it but uh yeah man i, I good conversation today uh hopefully for everyone out there i know we jumped around a, on a bunch of different topics but we were we were discussing ahead of time just how there's just so much going on that we wanted to, to share and we didn't really feel like we wanted to have the, the strictures of structures. So today was kind of an experiment. So let us know what you think. I mean, we, we go to mentallyunscripted.com, find the episode, put the comments in there. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, share with us what uh, what you think we missed and uh, where you'd like to hear us go next. And uh, I don't know, Scott, anything else before we wrap up? Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, we're talking about doing a series of podcasts on what the future is going to look out, look like. Um, you know, yes. what's, what's the future economy, the future legal system, um, just anything, uh, the future of work, the future of searching for work. And we're looking at bringing on some guests to help us work through that. Um, so if anyone's got any ideas on guests we can bring on or topics that we could tackle, um, let us know because it's an area of, that's really interesting to me, especially being a lawyer, what's going to happen um, with our legal system in the future? What's it going to look like with the um, advent of smart contracts and blockchain? Is that going to change anything? Um, the future of money, Bitcoin um, being the big one, what's going to happen there? So, yeah, so we're, we're working on putting that together. So if anybody's got any thoughts on that, definitely hit us up and we will try to see we, if we can work that in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, like I said, find us on mentallyinscripted.com. And until then, be safe, be good, and uh, don't get bogged down in the, uh, the mud world. <laughs> All right. Take care.